We're in a series, uh, I, I was going to say in the middle of a series, and I don't know where we are in the series. <laughs> what I know, <laughs> know is, but I, I'm learning from Chris, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, we're in a series entitled Marriage and Sexuality, and uh, today's part seven. And if you've missed any of the messages, in, in this case, I encourage you to go back and listen to them because there's bits and pieces all over the place because we can't say everything at one time and so but they but they often relate to the different aspects not just to the one aspect in which the in which the message was uh, given and uh, so uh, it's important that you go back and get all those uh, all those pieces here are some of the topics we've covered uh, so far uh, and they include like the first one what constitutes marriage uh, number two, uh, giving yourself up to serve the other in marriage, marriage, sexuality, and fear of the Lord, marriage and sex, pornography and freedom, and last week, uh, premarital sex consequences and the purpose of our bodies. That's, that's the topics behind uh, what we were talking about. And after seeing a display, an unbelievable display, and I, I hope some of you got to see it, uh, the abortion display there at 80 Penner Park with 100,000 100, pink and blue uh, flags that were planted by 80 volunteers in uh, just, uh, just over an hour. Um, it was a memorial, and uh, it, like standing there was just uh, amazing. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I've, uh, I've decided uh, to change the topic for next week and include in this series uh, something, uh, a message on abortion and uh, birth, contr uh, birth control contraception, that idea because it's very much, it fits into a series of marriage and sexuality. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that uh, next week. Today, we're going to talk about homosexuality and redemption. That's the title of the message today. And so I want us to uh, bow for a word of prayer, and then I'm going to make a few comments uh, right after that. Father, thank you so much as we, as we were uh, worshiping, uh, we sang about that love that will not let us go, that experiential love, not, not just some theoretical love, but this love that we actually feel and can experience and that so many Christians don't experience. Uh, God, I pray that somehow you would help us to be able to spread that kind of love, that, that people would know it in an experiential way through a walk with you in the Word and prayer, and uh, that, this would, uh, that this would infect the church across Canada, not only our church, but across the region, this province in Canada and beyond. And uh, Father, we also, as we sang, uh, oh, praise your name again. Oh, my goodness. Lord, uh, tears just come to our eyes as we think about that grand day when we're going to be able to start doing that face-to-face -face with you. We just can't wait. And if it weren't for some of the people that still need you, Jesus, we'd just say, please, just come now already. But we, uh, we just uh, say to you that we're willing to go with your timing because we know that you're not willing that any should perish and that you're anxious for all to come to repentance. And so we agree with that. And our, your heart is our heart. But we do long for you. And now, Lord, as we continue in this series, we know that you want a pure bride, 
a pure church when you come back. We're committed uh, to uh, submitting to your vision for the church and uh, for receiving that vision and for acting in accordance. Give us a desire for holiness and purity and uh, show us the way forward in overcoming our brokenness and walking out the freedom that you tell us that we're to walk out. That is available to us. And then we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, today I pray through what they're going to hear, I pray they would be drawn to the Savior who alone can save and who alone can redeem them and salvage them. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, one of our associate pastors, Ray Yoder, came to me and offered to let me use his testimony for this topic. I never forgot the offer, but was waiting for the right time to use it. It needed proper context, and I found that in the present series, Marriage and Sexuality. So I notified Ray, um, as soon as I got back from Vancouver, that I had found uh, that I'd found the proper context and fit for his testimony, and we settled on this weekend. Though we normally preach messages and include short testimonials, when I heard this testimony, his testimony, I knew it would be the message. In case your child is with you uh, this morning and not in children's ministry, be forewarned that this is a raw testimony. We videotaped it, and we're going to watch it now. And at the end, I'm going to come up and I'm going to wrap up with prayer and some appropriate comments. And so let's watch the video now. In what has been a brilliantly timely message series on marriage and sexuality, Pastor Ray has addressed many of the breaches in biblical sexuality observable in our culture and in the church today. Today we address another, homosexuality. This happens to be subject matter I am personally acquainted with and would like to share with you my extended testimony. One of the most jarring memories I have as a child, probably around 12, but I couldn't tell you for sure, was when I got caught wearing my sister's clothes. See, my sisters are 12 and 15 years older than I am, so by the time I have any memories of my upbringing, they were both soundly out of the home. But their rooms were still their rooms and they still had some clothes in their closets. In my sister Betty's closet, there was this one skirt I loved to put on because when I would spin, it would flare out. It seemed magical to me. One day when I had donned some of her clothes, I suddenly heard the sound of my mother climbing the steps of our two-story home, ascending toward my bedroom. I shut my door and tried to get out of my sister's clothes, but I couldn't do it fast enough. I panicked. I ran into my closet and shut the door. Mom was clearly wondering what on earth was going on and approached the closet to turn the knob. I remember the fear, you know, the terror, even as I read it today, 25 years later. What would she think? What would she do? How would I explain? I was experiencing a shame-loaded dread. What if Dad found out? I can never remember what happened when the door opened. My mother was a sweet, kind woman she was gentle in spirit and well-loved throughout our community. She was the kind of lady that would bake a pie for you if you had a baby or clean your house if you were ill. She was the queen of hospitality, always having homemade goodies waiting in the freezer for the unexpected visitor 
and she was always the happy recipient of a phone call that requested the coffee to be put on. The home was always impeccable. Cleaning day was Monday, and she vacuumed every Monday, regardless of how clean the carpet still remained. She laughed easily and gave generously. She had lost her first husband, my sister's father, after 10 years of marriage, and after a couple years of being widowed, she met and married my father. My father was the son of a Mennonite pastor who had moved north from Kansas to plant a church in the Northwest Territories. He made it as far as our Northern Alberta community and settled there, planting the little church that my father and subsequently I grew up in. Dad was more firm than mom, even harsh at times in my experience, and I feared him to a degree. He was raised in a conservative Mennonite tradition where women wore dresses and kept their long hair concealed beneath head coverings and where men worked the field and disciplined swiftly. My memories of my father don't include a lot of snuggling and warmth, though I've seen much more of that later in his years with his grandchildren. It should be noted that I have a significant respect for my father. I've seen his character transform in the last decade in ways I never expected, and I currently enjoy a rich and close relationship with him that I cherish. He did the best that he knew to do. I was just a little off the script. I also did not share common interests with my father. He was a farmer, a successful farmer, and highly involved in church and community leadership positions. I preferred the indoors. We lived just off a busy gravel road and due to my mother's fear of me getting hit by oncoming traffic, my father built a chain link fence around my swing set and sandbox. History tells a tale of me clinging to the chain link, weeping to be released from my prison of play and longing to simply return inside to be with my mother. That was where I liked to be. I was happy to help her bake. I assisted with much of the cleaning and the older I became, the more cooking and baking responsibilities I was able to take on. If mom was away for some reason, I would make food for myself and dad. My proficiency in the kitchen at age 13 surpassed my father's. It just wasn't his thing. When my parents asked me if I would like to take piano lessons, I lit up at the opportunity. In a tiny community like ours, little hamlet that we farmed outside of had approximately 250 residents, there was little opportunity to experience anything in the arts. I was naturally good with music, and playing piano and singing came easily to me. I found a resting place in music. This was a place for my heart to hover and glide amid the ebb and flow of a melody. In a setting where emotions were encouraged to be evened out to a place of acceptability, music was a place where deep emotion could be expressed. The depth of pain crested through a minor song rumbling on a low register. The intensity of joy pounded out through fast staccato rhythms. The sound of peace, the peace that I so desperately longed for, was mine when I played slow, open, full chords that were rich and full in harmony, compressed intervals, and a smooth and gentle dissonance. This was home for me. This was where my heart would find expression and rest. As I progressed toward junior high, my friends were a mix of boys and girls, but it was with the girls that I felt the safest and most at home. And slowly but surely, I began to experience an attraction to some of the boys. It was sort of like the morning sunrise. You can't identify the exact moment when it begins to get light out. Dawn just inches forward, regardless of your sentiment, toward the ever-increasing light. This is how my attraction to men emerged. It was early in the gay rights movement, certainly very early, considering the rural community we lived in. The sound of dad barking out in disgust over those gays is indelibly etched in my mind. 
I remember silently retreating farther into myself, knowing that the very behaviors he was repulsively condemning represented the emerging desires of my own awakening sexuality. I knew that feeling this way was wrong, but I couldn't help it. I tried to become sexually attracted to girls, but it just never worked. So many diary entries from those early years reflect the desire for girls to like me, to want to date me. Only one ever did, and I only went out with her because she was actually willing to go out with me. All my friends had stories about holding hands and kissing, and I had nothing. Ray Yoder, the school prude. I hated it. I wanted to be in a relationship with a girl like the other boys were. I wanted to have tales of conquest like they had, yet here I was again, different from the boys. I was teased and harbored deep insecurity for what felt like a thousand different things. My chubby body type, my faith, my glasses, my lack of athleticism, my academic strengths, my seemingly AWOL masculinity. There seemed to be so many things that were inferior in me. When hormones kicked in at puberty, I was a hot mess. I was caught in what felt like to me to be a no-win situation. I genuinely had some great male friends as well as great female friends, and we had a lot of fun together, riding quads through the bush in the summer, tubing behind snowmobiles in the winter. These were many of the perks to growing up in such a remote setting. But some of these same boys I also felt very attracted toward. These fiery desires made me do things I am horribly ashamed of, things that I deeply regret. As God has provided prompting and opportunity in my adult life, I have apologized to different boys, now men, that I offended upon in those broken years. Those shameful acts of my youth felt so good and so terrible all at once. I was simultaneously racked with pleasure and guilt. Yet whenever I divulged the appetite, it just made me hunger for more. It felt like I was fighting a losing battle. I knew that the holy God I professed to follow did not approve of my actions and I longed to be faithful to him. Yet I had these impulses that came over me like a tsunami. In the spring of my grade 10 year, mom and dad took some friends and I to a youth conference at a private Christian school in Southern Alberta. I had been struggling so much with these overwhelming sexual desires for other boys and men that I could barely contain it. One evening at the youth conference, the speaker was preaching out of Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I was gripped with conviction. I knew that I was one of those goats that the passage referred to because I was living duplicitously. I could no longer keep this sinful secret. The lustful fantasies I had been rehearsing in my mind and the voyeurism I had been engaging in toward other boys had to stop. I was so overwrought with emotion that my heart pounded and I trembled in my chair up in the balcony of the auditorium. When the speaker finally gave a call for those who wanted to live fully for Jesus, who wanted to be sheep, not goats, I practically ran for the altar. They took those of us who went forward to another location within the building and trained college students came to pray for us. It took me so long to even utter what my confession was. It was excruciatingly painful, humiliating, shameful. I was so embarrassed. I could not look at the man I was confessing to. I could not make eye contact. I just confessed and wept and wept and wept. Evidently, my problems were above this young man's pay grid because he called for backup. After praying for me, both he and his supporter encouraged me to tell my pastor at home what my struggle was so that I could no longer feel alone. When I lifted my head, the tears that had been pooling in my glasses splashed down on my lap. How long had I been there? Far longer than most of the others. This was the beginning of hope for me. First confession, first hope. My secret had been told, someone knew. I returned home to the frightening reality of sharing my story with my pastor. I remember how awkward I felt. I remember how awkward he felt. I remember the weird questions he asked in a genuine desire to understand while seemingly not having a clue how to respond to me. But I shared with him because I believed it was important. Just knowing that someone else locally was aware of what was going on in my head made a huge impact for accountability in my behavior. But it certainly didn't make the desires go away. Rather, they remained with my raging teenage hormones in constant conflict with my desire to live a moral life before a holy God. When I moved to a private Christian boarding school for grades 11 and 12, I was excited and terrified at the same time. My sisters had both attended their grade 12 year at a private Christian boarding school in Oregon, and they had always said if I could convince mom and dad to let me have two years, it would be far better. Well, they allowed it, and off I went. I was so excited to be with other Christian kids who wanted to live godly lives. This was my deepest heart's desire, and it had been so hard in public school because of my massive insecurities and desperate desire to find acceptance. I had been willing to diminish my moral center for the sake of fitting in with my public school friends, and I was looking forward to a new start. When I first moved into my dorm room, I immediately put a poster on my door, quoting a popular newsboy song at the time, I'm not ashamed to let you know, I want this light in me to show, I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. My desire for holiness was strong. My fear of the shower room was almost equally strong. Though not just an open shower room, my worst nightmare, it was still a room with six curtain showers that opened into a common space where one's personal items were placed. It was a tormenting daily experience going in there. However, once I made it through the morning shower routine, I loved my Christian boarding school experience. I became involved with the touring audition choir and the theatrical productions, both opportunities I had been unable to participate in back in public school. I became involved playing piano for the worship teams and eventually leading worship from the piano myself. God had placed in me an ability to sing and play, and I loved using it to lead others to worship Him. I also finally found a set of friends who wanted to walk with God, and I cherish these friendships deeply. 
I felt like I was home. I was accepted, popular in fact, in this setting. I was valued for my kindness and extroverted nature, for my humor and musical and theatrical gifting. I also began dating for the first time and began what became a four-year relationship with a local girl from my small town. I certainly did have affectionate feelings for her and she was a sweet and wonderful girl. Yet even though she was recognized as one of the most beautiful girls in the school, feelings of passion for her were non-existent. Purity in this relationship was never a challenge because I was never overwhelmed with the rush of hormones commonly associated with teenage boy-girl relationships. The last three years of this relationship were long distance because I left Alberta after graduating from high school. After high school, I went to Manitoba and attended Providence College south of Winnipeg. Another new, foreign, scary, exciting step in my life. I became heavily involved in all things musical and dramatic. I joined a touring drama troupe, led worship in chapels, and got involved in student leadership as well as a host of other activities. I loved the community aspect of college life. Yet again, living in a men's dorm had its issues. Thankfully, at this college, each room had its own bathroom and shower, so I only had to share that with my roommate and only one person could occupy it at a time. That gave me a significant degree of peace. However, it seems to be the case that whenever you get a group of young adult men together, someone often ends up naked. There were certainly times I stayed locked in my room because I knew someone was out in the hallway or common area strutting their confidence. While my lustful desires wished to propel me out the door, fear of being found out mixed together with a genuine desire for holiness and kept me in my room. In my last year, I developed a very close friendship with a young man. We had similar interests with music and really enjoyed each other's company. I didn't realize at the time how mixed my motives were in spending time with him. We would often wrestle in my room and I would successfully pin him down almost every time. While there was some of this that was just horsing around, for me, some of it was also laced with lust. In hindsight, however, I realized I was not able to be truly honest with myself at the time, and I really felt like I just found the kind of best friend that every person would want. However, as I look upon it now, years later, I can be honest enough with myself to say I fell in love with him. I enjoyed spending time with him, admired him, prioritized him, and found him attractive in every way. I remember when I finally told him about my homosexual feelings, not directed towards him, just sharing deep things as friends do. I was almost certain that he also had same-sex desires, but he did not express anything of the sort at the time. I felt like two people so much of the time as my sinful desires pulled me one direction, yet my desire to be a faithful Christian pulled hard the other way. During this same final year of academia, I was student body president and led the student body in a purity and holiness movement that swept through our campus. Together with my student council, I had themed that year all for Jesus and was honestly trying to live that out, even with the inner conflict that I felt. When we graduated, the aforementioned young man moved back to Edmonton with me and he, myself, and my childhood best friend shared an apartment. I shared my car with him. I helped him find work at the same place as I established employment. I realized at that time that my girlfriend had become simply my friend and we broke up. One night out of conviction from a message on purity, I shared that I struggled with lust towards this young man and he was stunned and repulsed and clearly overwhelmed. He began to avoid me, exclude me from his social circle and increasingly cut me out of his life until he finally moved out of the apartment. This was a horrible time in my life, 
as I suffered great rejection, anxiety, and pain. I developed a bleeding stomach ulcer during the months that this relationship disintegrated. In retrospect, I felt like it felt like a terrible breakup because much more of my heart was invested in him than I had realized, and it was clearly far more than his heart was invested in me. Eventually, he moved out of the province, and my life continued on. I wanted to get away. I began going to bars and frequently drinking and feeding a soulish side of me I had never freely satiated. The music I began, the music I began to enjoy carried more themes of escaping the moral confines I had held to, and I began planning to leave Edmonton to go overseas to either teach English or work at a resort or on a cruise ship. I professed to my friends and to my church leaders that I just wanted to do something fun. While I was still young and single and no one really discouraged this desire, my roommate and I were planning to go together. In hindsight, I was not being fully honest even with myself. What I really wanted was to get as far away as I could from the watching moral eye of family and friends so I could yield to the feelings that I had been staving off for so long. I interviewed for a cruise liner position and made plans to leave. And then I met this girl, Mary Smith. She was unlike any girl I had ever met before. She was confident, hilarious, direct, bold, a little crass, and my opposite in so many more ways. There was something in her that I just loved, and she was stunningly beautiful to boot. Yes, I was able to notice that. With these piercing light blue eyes which seemed to puncture any veneer I attempted to maintain, she seemed able to view the very core of my being before being invited to do so. My friends and I called her the Oracle because of her seemingly uncanny ability to know what was going on beneath the surface in our hearts and relationships. When I spent time with Mary, I felt exposed yet adored, vulnerable yet appreciated. I began to spend a lot of time with her. I worked nights at the time with troubled youth and when all the work was done, I would talk to her on the phone for hours in the middle of the night. I fell in love again, this time with a woman. I hadn't been looking for love, but love had found me in Mary. We dated for 11 months, were engaged for 11 weeks, and got married February 16th, 2002. It was so exciting. I convinced myself and Mary that the homosexual desires within my life were under control and that they wouldn't hinder our life together as bride and groom yet I still carried murmuring fears. As I saw the wedding night approaching, I was excited, yet terrified. What if things didn't work? And so began many years of troubled marriage. If I'm honest, the sexual relationship is one part of our marriage we're still figuring out, but we love each other deeply and we're both committed to the process, be it lifelong. From day one, Mary knew something was off. Rather than a honeymoon bliss of mutual delight after a dating and engagement relationship of restraint, I was extremely resistant. I just wanted to avoid the whole thing as often as possible. It was like all the negative sentiments and resulting behaviors I had accumulated about my sexuality over the years leading up to marriage, all the controlling, the abating, the dismissing, the silencing could not be shut off. Now I had a righteous application for my sexuality yet it filled me with fear. There were so many secrets hidden, then exposed about fantasies, pornography in those early years that trust within our marriage was absolutely fragmented. I had years of experience being a good Christian while camouflaging wicked desires and behaviors. 
I would hide things from Mary, not wanting her to get not wanting to get hurt by her responses, and then finally, in moments of duress, confessing to her. For Mary, far worse than any indiscretion was the mistrust born from lies that were exposed only when she stumbled upon the right question that forced it to the surface. My behavior contributed to depression, rage, and anxiety that plagued Mary for years. It is from the rubble of this almost complete destruction of our marital house that we have been rebuilding slowly yet steadily over the last several years. At different intervals within our marriage, I would run headlong into an all-encompassing body image obsession and work hard to achieve a fit, no, perfect physique. Being still sexually attracted to the male form, it was far too easy to obsess about my own body as well as the images in the fitness magazine I subscribed to in the early years of marriage. I also presumed this body obsession onto Mary. Early in our marriage, I aggressively critiqued her lifestyle choices as it pertained to diet and exercise. All of my issues combined with Mary's own broken past and a naturally strong personality and she began to try to reestablish control within the relationship in ways that felt domineering and interfering to me. I began to feel oppressed and micromanaged in all areas of life and both our lives became full of torment and pain. We both felt trapped in what seemed to be inescapable agony. Throughout some of these years, I read different books about homosexuality, we saw different counselors, and I attended a group for the sexually broken, as well as received personal ministry at church. Pastor Ray knew throughout my journey that I was a young man in need of help and stood alongside me as I fought, floundered, and drew breath yet again. During that season, some of the books, counselors, and groups offered me, us, no hope, but merely suggested we learn to get along better. Others professed that a redirection of sexual desire away from men and toward women was possible after a mysterious quality and quantity of therapy. Some of these elements helped, take, uh, helped me take a step towards greater wholeness, yet at the same time, it became increasingly evident to me that there was no silver bullet that would slay my ills. Somewhere in this swarm of adverse emotions, we managed to have our first child. Sweet Violet arrived January 27, 2006 at the mighty weight of one pound, 13 ounces. She became the center of our universe as we spent the next three months in hospital, living at Ronald McDonald House in Winnipeg, and me commuting to work in Steinbach. Once we were home from the hospital, things continued to digress. We delighted in our little girl, but we did not delight in each other. Threats of leaving abounded, fear and anger ruled. I moved to the basement and built a room for myself there for several months when things were at their worst. I recall one night when Mary had packed her bags and was in her space looking at flights back to Alberta and I was in my space simmering in personal torment, googling my way through images of men. I imagined returning to that young man I had met in college. I just wanted to run. I wanted escape. I just wanted to feel good. I felt that Mary and I would just be better off if I was dead, but I knew I couldn't do that. I knew the decision to take any human life, even my own, was not my call to make. And I didn't actually want to be dead, just happy and at peace. No, I didn't really want to be dead. I wish she was dead. Then I could live as a single parent with my infant daughter, quietly and respectfully resigned from my position at the church. I had no desire to hurt the church, they'd done so much for me. And move somewhere far away where no one could see my goings on. I fantasized about faking my own death so I could start fresh somewhere else. That was really the best scenario that I could come up with, for in it there was no death, scandal, or divorce. 
Rather, Mary would be free of me and me of her, but my daughter, I can't leave my daughter. I remember the day that I sat before God in my church office, this church where I'd been on staff for a handful of years already and was confronted by the fact that I had to decide if I was going to submit my spirituality to my sexuality or my sexuality to my spirituality. I just had too much conscience to abandon my faith. I'd experienced too much, I'd seen too much. I knew that Jesus was real, heaven, hell, all real. I knew trying to homogenize homosexual behavior and biblical directive was simply sloppy revisionist theology. So what was I left with? What hope did I have? I tried everything, at least so I thought. In hindsight, I had not. I had not given Jesus his fair chance at delivering me. I had given him desperate prayers in moments of crisis, demanding to know why freedom had not been granted to me. I had prayed panicked, shame-filled prayers after I had looked and longed lustfully at a man, but I had never engaged with this pure and holy man, this Jesus, the way that I was about to. I didn't realize what I was missing. I, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I was desperate. Something had to give, something had to give. So I threw myself at Jesus' feet. If getting up at 5 a.m. and spending two hours in Bible reading and prayer was going to do it, then I was finally desperate enough to try it. And that's what I did. When I came to the end of myself, when I lost all hope of peace and resolve, it was there that I became desperate enough to change my life patterns toward God. This was when I feel my relationship with Jesus really began. I'd been a Christian my whole life. My worldview and theology adequately reflected traditional orthodoxy, but the living Christ was still foreign to me. I thought I was living all there was to live when it came to Christianity. I had no idea the fullness I was walking into. I began waking at what I previously would have considered an ungodly hour of the morning and proceeded to our prayer room at church. In those days, no one was in there but me in those early hours. I would listen to the lyrics of the music playing and read the scriptures. I would weep as God would speak to me profoundly through both, but especially through his word. I began to realize that all my life, my entire Christian existence, I had never had a real relationship with Jesus. I had touted the lingo, but I didn't relate to Jesus like I did to everyone else. No, this was a special relationship where I believed a lot of information about someone, but where my interactions with him were brief and infrequent. I didn't realize back in those days that the very power to live a godly life was found in the relationship, in the very presence and life of Jesus, himself pouring into my soul through the word and prayer and nourishing a deep and broken place in me that was horridly fragmented. But he began, slowly and surely, to pull apart my mangled sense of self, which included a damaged sense of sexuality, and to deliver me. He began to reveal more of who he really was rather than the false image I had presumed upon him based upon life experiences and a neglect of his word. I will never forget sitting in a prayer room in 2008, wanting to get going with my list, a God not allowing me to move into it. He kept me reading in passages of scripture I had long neglected, and every now and then a verse would vividly strike me and I knew he was speaking to me deeply. I would weep in response to his heart for me when I would read things about the way God pursues his people, like in Hosea 2, 14 to 16 and verse 19, which says, 
but then I will win her, his people, back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into the gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captives in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. I just wept as I realized for the first time that God actually wanted me, that he loved me no matter what, regardless of my brokenness, regardless of my strengths. In all my years of being a Christian, I'd never really understood how Jesus loved me other than in my head. I had known that God loved me as sound theology, but now I began to feel his love experientially, and my whole heart began to change. The word became more and more alive to me, and my times of devotion were amazing as I began to actually get to know God. I realized in hindsight that I had been living, that I had been having difficulty in my times of reading and prayer because I hadn't known God for who he really was, and I hadn't particularly liked who I thought he was. In all honesty, I'd been afraid of him and felt that I was perpetually disappointing him because I primarily saw him as a taskmaster. He began to change my understanding of his true identity. In this time of awakening, I began to experience him as joyful. I began to realize he enjoyed spending time alone with me and that he loved just doing life with me. Romans 12, 1-2 says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. This became my experience. My thinking changed. As I fed this increasing appetite for God, it grew. And I was enabled with greater and greater ease to starve out the homosexual hunger that had clawed at me for years. In conclusion, there are a few things I now know. I know who I am. I remember a message Stefan preached a few years ago. In it, he described how freedom is someone opening the door to your jail cell and revealing to you the exit, even walking with you. But part of that liberation process is that your emancipator allows you to exit of your own free volition. He won't force you out of your cell. This resonates with me deeply because Jesus has set me free from compelling sin. Temptation lingers in the peripheral vision of my life and I have the choice to welcome it like an old wicked friend or to keep my eyes transfixed upon the author, perfecter, and goal of my faith, Jesus. One of the songs we sing at church includes the lyrics, I lay my life down, I take up my cross, and find more freedom than I could ever dream of. This encapsulates how I feel about sexual sin in my life. I am not a gay man surviving a straight marriage while denying who I truly am. I am no longer ensnared by my sin. I no longer identify myself by my sin. Colossians 3.3 says your real life is hidden with Christ in God. So too I have found my true identity in my Savior, in relationship with Jesus. This 
is who I truly am. I know how much I need people, most notably my faithful wife, as well as mentors, pastors, brothers, and sisters to walk with me on the faith journey lest I bend the knee to pride, the king of sins. I would have never made it this far on my own, and I would not finish well alone because I am designed for interdependence. I've probably sought more prayer and counsel with pastoral staff at this church than most people ever will. These have provided helpful guidance, wisdom, prayer, and support along the way. Other close friends on staff have been my accountability, my listening ear, my gentle rebuke, my prayer of encouragement, my friends. Let it be known, without the supportive and wise community I've found in this church, I would be dead in the water. Learning the benefits of confession as rehearsed in the Set Free Retreat, the necessary empowerment of the Spirit as experienced in the Empower, the accessibility of God's voice through the Hearing God Workshop, these truths have been exceptionally life-giving and freedom-securing for me. I know I need God. I am keenly aware that I must continually cultivate a heart of humility and ever rehearse the instrument of confession when I stumble along the way. I must return steadily to his word. It is the IV line supplying true life to my veins. And whenever I unplug myself for too long, I become nothing less than a walking dead man. And let me say, I love his word. I love the Bible. Not only is it necessary to me, it is rich and dynamic, empowering and revealing. It searches my heart and discloses to me God's. It gives me the context for the days I tread in this lifetime. It nourishes in me a longing for the next one. It tutors me on the boundaries of the narrow path, just as my experience exposes my powerlessness outside of God's spirit to stay within them. I need daily exposure to the word of God, to the fellowship of prayer, and to hearing his voice. I need his guidance, his reassurance, his conviction, his forgiveness. These I find in the morning solitude of the quiet place, and I hear the echoes of these whispers throughout my days. Finally, I know I love Jesus. I love Jesus. He has delivered me from an Egypt I thought inescapable, a torturous slavery I thought certain. He has filled me with spirit power to walk holy. Jesus used to be my religion, and he has become my hope. Both for comfort, peace, and joy today, and for the day when I gain a new body and mind that longs for no wicked thing, he is my one sure thing. He is my wisdom. He has filled me with desire for a woman I adore and given me her love in return. He has given me three beautiful children and a life I could have never experienced had I surrendered to the sinful desires of my past. He has brought me to and through every redemptive act and season in my life, and I am gratefully and eternally in his loyal service in response. Obedience is no sacrifice when peace is the reward. What can compare to a heart at rest? What can anyone offer me that is better than that? 38 years, 11 pages, 40 minutes, and such is my life up to this moment. Thank you. What a, <clears throat> what a courageous, spirit-guided, 
and theologically sound testimony. Ray said several things that I want to uh, reference uh, now as we wrap up. It began with confessing to someone and repentance, and he, he emphasized that. The second thing that he said that was really, really critical in our wrap-up is that it was a struggle he had to engage in. He couldn't just sit back and wait for Jesus to do something. Number three, he said that the experiential love of Jesus through a daily walk in the, in the Word or the Bible and prayer was and is required to fill the vacuum within. Apart from that, um, that's what replaced those, uh, those, the brokenness and the sinful desires that he had. So it had to be an experiential love that he had to choose and engage in. The fourth thing he said, he needed and continues to need community to walk out freedom. That was critical what he said there. The Christian life isn't a solo walk. It's a life in community. We can't get all of what we need from God, God's grace, in many aspects, all by ourselves, directly from Him. Much of the grace that we need from Him to be set free from our brokenness and to walk in freedom comes through the other members of the body. And that isn't just sitting in a Sunday morning service. If that's all you do, that's not what Ray Yoder is talking about. He's talking about community where you're in a small group setting, where you sit down and you engage in prayer for each other, confession, praying over one another, encouraging one another, sharing scripture together, and God pours his life through us that way. So individually, through the word and prayer, but also in community. And we can't do one or the other, we need both. And he emphasized that piece. When Ray and I discussed the, uh, the title of today's message, he suggested what we have called it, homosexuality and redemption. How appropriate. Redemption. We can all be experientially redeemed from our various kinds of sinful brokenness. We can be forgiven, we can be salvaged, and we can be restored. Amen? Amen. That is a hopeful message. That is the good news of the Christian message. That we can be salvaged and restored, and we can walk out in freedom. And Ray, through his testimony and his life and his experience, has shown us the biblical way to walk that out. What a good God, amen? That he would give us hope in our brokenness. And we are all broken. We're all born sinful and broken. That's what the scriptures teach us. There isn't one here that hasn't been broken in some way. Scriptures say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it manifests itself in different ways. In Ray Yoder, it manifested itself in his uh, sexual attractions. 
But others of us, it comes out in other lustful kinds of ways or other kinds of sins that come under the category of pride and so on. But we can all know deliverance. Maybe you came here this morning and uh, you heard this testimony and something seems to be stirring in you right now. All of us are separated from God because of our brokenness and sin. God, not only being a loving God, but a just God, demands justice for our sins. But because he loves us so much, because he loves us so much, he sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty, so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty. Either we pay the penalty, or he pays the penalty. And he said, I'll provide the payment for the penalty, and Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If you will receive that payment by faith, then he won't exact the payment from you. That is good news, my friend. That is incredibly good news, because we don't deserve it. And all we have to do is place our faith, is turn from our sins, which is repentance, and say, I agree with you, God, that that is sinful, whatever it is, whether, it's, whether you're struggling with the same thing that Ray Yoder was talking about, or whether it's some other sin, sexual or otherwise. I repent of that, and I put my faith and trust in you for the forgiveness of those sins and the removal of the guilt for that, and I put my faith in you to lead me out to wholeness and to be my Savior and to be my Lord. That's what it takes. Now, one of the ways you can activate that faith and um, walk out that faith is to pray a prayer, a believing prayer. That's the key. Just saying a prayer doesn't change anything. So I'm going to invite the church to... Um, Follow, follow along as we often do in a prayer to receive Jesus, to put your faith and trust in him, to repent of your sins and receive him as your savior. That's the beginning of the walk that Ray Yoder was talking about. That's where you start. And so church, would you follow me in a prayer? And if you're here and you have never received Christ as savior in the way that I explained, if you pray that prayer, but mean it from your heart, pray to God, not to me, and God promises that all who call on his name will be saved. All right? Dear God, thank you for bringing me here this morning to hear this testimony. I get it now. I realize that you are my only hope I confess that I've been trying to live life on my own and I repent of my independence, my rejection of you, my sinfulness, my sinful behaviors. And I turn to you, Lord Jesus, thanking you that you died on the cross for my sins to make payment for my sins. 
I receive that payment by faith for myself. I turn to you. I ask you now to be the guide and Lord of my life. You make the decisions, and I'll follow you. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you meant that, you need to tell someone, and then you need to get into community. And uh, I'll, I'll say a word about that in just a moment, but perhaps you're here today. Uh, you may be a Christian who's been struggling, and you're just about ready to, to give up. Some of the things that he said about walking into freedom, you can't identify with. And you've been living trapped in a life of sin. It begins with confession and repentance. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. You don't have to pray out loud, but pray inside. I'm going to pray for you that you will decide that today is the day. No more. Just like Ray came to the end of himself and said, that's it. If this is what it's going to take, remember he said that? then that's what I'm going to do. You have to come to that point. Father, I thank you for bringing me here today and speaking me through the life of one of your servants. And I realize that I've been playing with my sins or I've been trapped by my sins. I'm engulfed and enslaved by my sins and I am so done with it. Today, I say to you, no more. I confess it as sin, I repent of it, I turn to you, and I ask you to forgive me, and I ask you to help me to walk out into freedom, out of that cage. Show me the way, guide me out of that cage as you did Ray Yoder. And I thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, two action steps uh, for you. The first one is we have a prayer room uh, just out those double doors and over to the side. Uh, they minister to a, couple of, uh, to a couple of thousand people per year that go there after our services and, uh, and ask for prayer. There were many people in, in, in the prayer room last night after the two services. Go to, those, go to that room. There are trained intercessors waiting to pray with you. And they'll, they'll, they'll set you on the on the right track. The second thing that I want, uh, want to encourage you about is cell groups. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me, fascinating, that Ray Yoder is our associate pastor of cell groups. And uh, you need to get into the right one. And he will help you to get into a group where they will actually help you walk out that freedom. You have his email address there, church email address and you may contact him at that address. And if you happen to be struggling with the same issue that Ray was talking about, you now know someone in our church with whom you can talk, someone who knows what he's talking about, who can empathize with your struggle, understand it, but can also, also point you out of that struggle. Isn't that amazing? That God has provided us with that here at Southland? Or perhaps you have a close family member who is struggling. You wish to talk with Ray about it. That's just fine. Now, one last comment about Ray and Mary. When you see them, 
thank them for their vulnerability and courage to do this because they were not coerced to do this. They were not pressured in any way. They offered it, which is remarkable. They wanted to do this because they strongly believed it would give others courage to admit their issues and begin the journey toward wholeness. Fran and I love Ray and Mary, and so do our staff. And now we're going to sing the very song that Ray referenced in his testimony, I Lay My Life Down. 